and welcome to the PLUS podcast. I'm Rachel Thomas. This is the second podcast for our project, Do You Know What's Good For You? Investigating the maths and statistics behind the biomedical sciences. So how do you know what's good for you? And how do doctors and the medical establishment decide which medical treatments work and which we should receive on the National Health Service? Over the last 60 years, sophisticated testing methods have been developed to rigorously test medical interventions, and the gold standard of this testing is called randomised controlled trials. In such a trial, patients will be randomly allocated to one of two groups. The first group, called the study group, will receive the treatment we're trying to test. The second group, called the control group, will be given a placebo, a dummy treatment that we know doesn't work or in some cases they'll receive some existing treatment that we're trying to test against. David Spiegelhalter, the Professor for Public Understanding of Risk at the University of Cambridge, explains why this method of randomly deciding which patients get the study and control treatments can give us evidence that the new treatment really works. Well, well, first of all, of course, um, if you just give it to one group and then to another group, there's all sorts of ways in which those groups might differ. They might be systematically older or younger, there may be more women in one group, they may be in a different place. And so to make a fair comparison, uh, you should try to make sure that any differences are just due to chance. And the way to do that is to allocate the people at random for getting the treatment. So the basis of randomization, it's got a number of reasons. First of all, I suppose to protect against people cheating and giving the treatment to people who aren't as sick or who look like they may benefit. So that's one of the, the big aspects, is just to make it a fair comparison. But the other, the other aspect is, is more sort of mathematical, and that's to make sure that any variability between the groups um, should be just due to chance. And so you know that um, since the groups are comparable at the beginning, if after you've given them the drug, and the other group haven't had the drug, and you follow them up for a long time, and if at the end of that they are different, more people are sick, more people are better in one group than another, then you know, well, either the drug has been effective, or a very surprising event has occurred. And that's the crucial sort of distinction, that, you know, crucial choice you have to make. And what the, status, the statistical approach tries to do is quantify that degree of surprise. So you can say that, well, these groups are different, you know, um, more people have got better in one group than another. Well, hang on, is that just chance or not? And the, the all the statistical analysis, all these decades of work, um, it really, a lot of it boils down to saying, well, um, you know, how likely are you to get such a, a significant difference, but a big difference by chance alone? And if that's one in a hundred thousand, you know that either this drug has had an effect or an unbelievably rare event has occurred and it's just more plausible that the drug has got an effect. Of course, you can never be absolutely certain, but it's just so unlikely that such a big difference could occur by chance alone. So the crucial thing is this number of how likely and this is a really tricky business, which, you know, people after decades of trouble <laughs> getting right, <laughs> how likely is it that you would get such an extreme difference by chance alone? And the real thing is that if you only do it on 10 people each, and you give the drug to 10 people, you may do it at random, but six get better in one group and three get better in another. Okay, that's, you know, that's double the, uh, you know, the, the improvement rate. You might think, well, P, we've got a great drug. Well, hang on, you know, six versus three, that could be just chance. If you flipped a coin 10 times, you know, it might come up heads six times or tails three, heads three times. I mean, this is purely, this could be pure chance. But if, however, you gave it to 1,000 people each and 600 got better in one group and 300 group, 
got better than another, well then you think you, you're, you're our own to a winner. This is really amazing. This is just completely implausible that this could happen by chance alone. So the sample size is absolutely crucial to deciding whether the, the observed differences, you know, this apparent improvement, could be due to chance alone. And how do you know when you've tested enough people? How do you know when you're designing a trial to do a thousand rather than... Well, yeah, yeah, there's two aspects. First of all, before you get the data and then afterwards. Um, before you get the data, they know it's this element, it's what's called um, the power of the study. And that's determined by the sample size. Or actually, more correctly, it's determined by the number of events that you observe. So if you're, if you're, if you're carried doing a clinical trial where, for example, death is the outcome, which many are, um, you've got to have, it's a terrible thing to say, you've got to have a lot of bodies. Um, if it's a very rare event, uh, then even if you've got 10,000 people in each group, if only you, if you have three deaths in one and two deaths in another, it still is hopeless. You can't tell any whether it's any better or not. So it's the, it's the number of bodies that's important, the number of events that you, that you need to um, make sure you're going to have enough events in your, in your study to to get a confident result. Okay, what do we mean by that you're likely to get a confident result? The, the power calculation is odd because you have to think in advance, well, what kind of difference might I observe? What would be both plausible and important? It's almost like you've got a target. You, you sort of think, well, you know, if this drug really were better and if it really were, you know, cured 20% better people, that would be very important and it's actually would be quite plausible and you have to use your past judgment and people do analyze past studies look at other studies even look at you know uh, tests on animals whatever to get a feeling for what the benefit might be to explain how you might estimate the size of the effect you're expecting your new treatment to have we spoke to professor Sheila Bird of the biostatistics unit in Cambridge in a previous PLUS podcast, Sheila Bird told us about the NLive trial she is planning, a randomised controlled trial of a new method of distributing the heroin antidote, naloxone, to try to reduce the number of drug overdoses in prisoners in the first month after their release. She now explains how they have calculated the size of the effect they expect to see in the NLive trial. First of all, you need to have an estimate uh, of what proportion of uh, prisoners with a history of heroin injection are liable to die from drug-related drug death in the first four weeks of release, uh, within f four weeks of release from prison. And so epidemiological evidence uh, and record linkage studies has allowed us to estimate that that is about 1 in 200. So in a control group of 28,000 uh, eligible uh, prisoner releases, uh, we would expect 140 drugs-related deaths within four weeks of release from prison. Now, naloxone and most of those drugs-related deaths are due to heroin overdose. Um, now, naloxone is the heroin antidote. So the efficacy of naloxone is not the issue. It works. The question is whether prison-based distribution of naloxone, prescription of naloxone for prisoners with a history of heroin injection um, will uh, work. And what is required for it to work? Well, first of all, there needs to be somebody else present at the overdose who can actually administer the naloxone. And in about 80% of overdoses, there is somebody else present. So you're already down from 100% to 80%. There needs to be somebody else present. 
the ex-prisoner needs to have remembered to carry his naloxone with him. And we think it is reasonable uh, that that memory will be well served about three quarters of the time in the first four weeks because we give the, the, the prisoners quite a lot of information about it and emphasise to them the need to carry their naloxone with them. We've also miniaturised the, the package so that it makes it easier to carry. Uh, so we reckon that there's a three quarters chance that in the event of an overdose, the prisoner, w the ex-prisoner, will actually have his naloxone with him. So we're now down from 80 to 60, because both the somebody else is present and the naloxone is present. And then we think conservatively uh, that there's a 50-50 chance that that present other will have the presence of mind to look for the naloxone and to administer it intramuscularly. And so that takes us down from 60% to 30%. So this is effectiveness that is on trial, not efficacy. And we think it is plausible that in the first four weeks, naloxone could deliver a 30% reduction in drugs-related deaths soon after release. So in the group who are randomised to receive naloxone, uh, instead of 140 deaths, we expect a 30% reduction on that 90 deaths in the first drugs related deaths in the first fortnight. David Spiegelhalter again. Having made that judgment about what difference would be plausible or, or important, you want to make sure that your trial is big enough so that if that really were the case, and you're saying it very well could be the case, you're not going to miss it just by chance alone. And that's what's known as you, what you don't want. That would be a, a what's called a false negative. In other words, there really was a difference and then you missed it. And uh, you know, so you've wasted that opportunity. You've the trial comes out, and the different the groups don't look very different. Um, but actually, underneath, if you'd gone on further, if you'd made the trial bigger, you would have found something in the end. If including more people in your trial makes it a more powerful measuring instrument, why don't researchers always test on as many patients as possible? We asked Nigel Hawkes, journalist and director of the campaign Straight Statistics. Well, they have to strike a balance, really. The more people you test, the more it costs. So you have to uh, size your trial uh, so you've got enough statistical power to produce uh, a meaningful result. Um, if the effect you're looking for is very large, if you find a very large effect, then you need fewer people. But um, if, you, if the effect is quite small, you need a very large number of people to, to get the, uh, the, the, the statistical significance out of it. Um, so in general a bigger trial, a larger trial is, is better, but that doesn't mean a small trial may not produce significant results. I mean, you didn't, people didn't need to do terribly sophisticated trials when penicillin was invented, you know, and uh, you, you, you could show that it cured people who would otherwise have died very, very quickly. You didn't even need a trial because that was a, a, a miracle drug that, that brought people back from, the, from death. That's very seldom. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. So that, that's a sort of the effect size of treating with penicillin was so big. It was so great yeah. that you hardly needed a, a trial to, to show it, really. Yeah. Um, but in most cases, uh, particularly with cancer drugs, the incremental benefits you're looking for are very small. You know, a few months extra survival, 
uh, 5% improvement in treatment, that may seem very, very trivial, but actually that's the way cancer medicine has developed, by lots of small incremental improvements. So if you're only, if you're only looking for, a, you know, if you're only going to get a very small improvement, you need, an, you need a lot of people, you need a trial with, with thousands of people, ideally. So just how do you know how many people you need to include in your trial? The NLive trial will include 56,000 prisoners, 28,000 in the study group and 28,000 in the control group. We asked Sheila Bird how they decided how many people they needed to include in the NLive trial. In fact, what you do in designing a clinical trial is that you think of it almost as a measurement instrument. as It's measuring the effectiveness. It, it, um, and so you wouldn't use a measurement instrument if it didn't give you the, the right answer at, at least 50% of the time. So I would never run a randomised controlled trial if I could help it that didn't have at least 50-50 chance of discerning the effect size that I thought was a priori plausible. Yes. And ideally you want a much better power, higher power than 50-50, and most randomised trials, including naloxone, the NLive study of naloxone, is designed to have at least 80% power. In other words, if I use an instrument, design a study on 56,000, then there's an 80% chance that if the effectiveness is as great as 30%, then I will know it by the yardstick of statistical significance. My confidence interval will say we've done better with the intervention than, than not. Once you know how big an effect you're expecting, a 30% reduction in deaths in the NLIO study, standard statistical formula are used to calculate the sample size you need to give your measuring instrument, the randomised controlled trial, an 80% power. That means that if your estimate of the effect of the new treatment is correct, then 8 out of 10 trials will correctly detect this difference. But the science comes in and working out what is the plausible effect size. And if you get that badly wrong, uh, or if you have uncertainty about that, that you haven't sufficiently reflected in uh, your, you know, your trial size, um, then uh, you may still, as it were, uh, randomise too few individuals. Too small a sample size might mean you miss out on detecting that your treatment really does have an effect. Alternatively, if you made an error the other way and included too many people in your trial, not only will it cost more, it may also be unethical. If you have a very strong prior belief that your treatment will work, or your data convinces you of this early on in the trial, continuing to randomise the treatment would be unethical, effectively denying patients a treatment that you now believe works. If you randomise more individuals, many more people than you needed in order to discern and find out what was going on, and of course we, we build checks into randomised controlled trials, you have Data Safety Monitoring Committee, uh, so that if the results are actually more promising uh, than was considered a priori plausible, you don't wait until the end of the trial to find that out. Yeah. It's very important ethically. So you run your trial and you analyse your data. You have seen a difference, but how do you know if that difference was due to your treatment or just due to chance? Research is usually quoted as saying their results are statistically significant or that the difference was greater than due to chance alone. But what exactly does that mean? Nigel Hawkes from Straight Statistics again. Well, statistical significance is conventionally measured by um, a 5%. In other words, 
this result would only have come about by chance in one in 20 cases. Now that's not, you know, one in 20 is not terribly long odds. Mm. So the conventional measure of statistical significance, a lot of people might think, well, you know, that's not terrifically significant. So why is this 5% measure of statistical significance used? Surprisingly, as David Spiegelhalter explains, that figure of 5% was an arbitrary choice made by Fisher when he first compiled the statistical tables in the 1920s. So he just did 5 and 1%, and, and that was it. So that's now become sort of written in stone, you know, just these numbers. But they do provide a sort of convention, which is a useful convention. So 5% is the convention, but what does this 5% value mean for randomised controlled trials? As David Spiegelhalter mentioned earlier, once you have done your trial and detected a difference between the outcomes of the two groups, then either you know the drug has worked and improved the outcome of your study group, or a very surprising event has occurred. The drug has had no effect and the difference you observed is just down to chance alone. Then the statistical analysis and design of the trial at the 5% level of significance means that in 1 in 20 trials of a drug that doesn't work, we will observe a difference occurring due to chance alone. The crucial thing is that um, it means that when you've observed, um, you know, you've put so many, 100 people in one group, 100 people in another, and you found a difference between the groups, and it looks quite big, you want to say, well, you've got a, an observed difference between the group, one, there may be a 20% improvement in the group, but actually what you're really trying to estimate is what's the almost underlying improvement. If you, if you applied this to, to millions of people and you kept on and on and on, in the end, what would you find as the improvement in the population? You've got a sample that you're trying to estimate what would happen if you, if you carried on applying this to large numbers of people. And so you can't be sure of what that would be. But you can be fairly sure, and if, especially if the numbers are big that you've got in your sample, you can, just like doing a survey, you can be more and more confident about um, what the underlying um, improvement is, the, the thing you're actually trying to estimate in the population. One way of conveying what this underlying improvement is, is to give a range of values that you think this underlying improvement could take, called a confidence interval. The technical definition is it's a confidence interval results from a procedure that if you repeatedly apply it in many different situations, 95% of the time will contain the actual true value that you're trying to, um, you're trying to um, estimate. And the interval gives you an idea of where that true underlying um, improvement might be. Uh, in other words, um, you know, if you did implement this in practice, um, in a similar group of people that you've been experimenting on, um, what you would find in the long term to be the improvement. And that, of course, is the important thing, not just the improvement that you've observed in this group of people. For a treatment to become available now, it has to be tested in several randomised controlled trials. We asked Nigel Hawkes why one trial isn't enough evidence that a new treatment works. Well, you can get anomalous results. I mean, as I said, the, the, the normal measure of statistical significance is not that demanding. So if you ran 40 trials, um, and uh, two of them might be, appear to be statistically significant, because it's a 1 in 20 chance, uh, and if, you did one, if one of those happened to be the first one you did, you'd think you'd got a significant result. David Spiegelhalter again. One of the issues that comes up is whether you should do you know, multiple studies about, th about things. And um, it has become established really that uh, you know, a single study um, is of not considered sufficient evidence 
for a new intervention. Now that's not always the case. If that study is just so overwhelmingly obvious what it, the, the benefits seen, then there's no point in, in, in reproducing it. But for example, in, um, it's, it's established, for example, the, the Food and Drug Administration in, in, in the US, the FDA, which regulates one of the you know, major international regulator for approval of drugs to go on the market. Um, its sort of dogma is that you have to have two independent randomized trials in different contexts, both significant at the 5% level, use that, that phrase, in order to, for a, dr a, a drug to be, to be um, part, part allowed. You know, the, the single trial is not enough. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, to show that there is reproducibility in, in slightly different populations. Um, also, the fact that this stage, this phrase at the 5% level, means that in fact, um, out of 20 drugs that don't work, um, one in 20 of them will show a difference at the 5% level by chance alone. So 5% is not a very stringent criteria at all. That would mean that you know you could try 20 drug useless drugs and get one of them through the FDA and flog it on the market if they only use one one trial, which would be ridiculous. It means that um, you know we'd be having a lot of useless treatments on the market, which we may of course have anyway. But never mind. Um, we so so two of them. Um, actually means that the chance of them both coming up as positives if the drug doesn't work at all it gets a lot lower, you know, 1 in 400 essentially, so you know, it's a much more stringent criteria. But there's also, even, even in areas which aren't concerned with drug regulation, a feeling that um, you know, to really believe that a treatment works, um, one would like to see it, evidence for that, in different populations, in different groups, run by different people using slightly different um, you know, maybe slightly different protocols or whatever. It gives a lot of confidence that the um, treatment, the effect found in a particular study, wasn't due to chance alone. Um, so th that th that's what given rise to um, enormous interest, growth of interest over the last ten years or so in what's called meta-analysis, where one or, or evidence synthesis, where one puts together the, the results from numerous studies. Before the widespread use of randomised controlled trials. Medical treatments were tested by doctors simply giving them to their patients on a case-by-case -case basis and accumulating what was effectively anecdotal evidence. This process was open to all sorts of bias. The doctor might see an effect simply because they are expecting to see one, or the patient might experience something called the placebo effect and feel better just because they were being treated rather than the effects of the treatment itself. The sophisticated processes of randomised controlled trials developed to address bias such as these. However, if an untested treatment is already in common use, it can be very difficult to convince patients and the medical establishment that it should be verified through a randomised controlled trial. It's very difficult to do a randomised trial of something that's already in practice against not doing it or doing something simpler or just leaving it. It's unbelievable because everyone considers it unethical to do. Withdrawing a standard treatment is really difficult, so people just won't do it. However, one instance where this did occur was for the treatment of breast cancer. I think that most people don't realise that, you know, for example, trials of radical mastectomy about you know whether a whole breast should be removed with the breast cancer, those were investigated in randomised trials. So people were allocated at random whether to have their entire breast removed or just a, a lump removed with the tumour. So you know, really quite um, a dramatic um, experiments have been done, which are absolutely crucial to decide what treatments actually should be used in general. In a way, those sorts of studies are sometimes called equivalent studies in that you want to show, rather than the treatments are different, you want to show, you would like to show that the results are actually much the same, but the intervention is much less radical and much, sort of, you know, um, uh, much uh, kinder to the, uh, to the patient. 
So we've seen that randomised controlled trials are now the gold standard when it comes to evidence for the medical establishment that medical treatments work. But as promising results of new treatments are reported so often in the media, what evidence should we be looking out for to judge the benefits and risks of new treatments? Nigel Hawkes again. What, what tends to happen is that the um, benefits and the hazards are expressed in different ways. The benefits tend to be expressed um, as a percentage improvement in survival. Let's say under, a, under existing treatments, 5% of people survive for five years. Under the new treatment, 7% of people do. That could be expressed as a 40% improvement in survival. Um, and that looks very good because relative uh, uh, improvements always tend to look better than if you express it in absolute terms. Um, disbenefits or risks tend to be expressed differently in absolute terms as, uh, say, one in a thousand suffered a side effect or two in a thousand suffered a side effect. Um, and that sounds very small. So it's a common trick to express benefits in one way, disbenefits in another way. It's called mismatch framing. It's very, very common in the medical literature. It's been criticised for, for many years, but it still happens. There was a statin trial, a trial of a heart drug, a statin heart drug, that was advertised by the manufacturers as um, reducing heart attacks by uh, 30%. Um, what this in fact meant was, um, if 30% uh, over three years, I think it was, what this meant in real terms was, um, if you had the drug, um, if you gave the drug to 100 men, or 100 people, it was men and women, um, five of them would have another heart attack within three years. If you didn't give it to them, seven would have another heart attack within three years. So if you look at it that way, it's not such a huge benefit, but if you express it as a 30% or 33% improvement, it sounds dramatic. You have to look at the absolute numbers and you really have to turn the whole thing round and try and express it as a number needed to treat. In other words, how many people do you need to treat with, with this medicine in order to um, achieve one uh, less death or, or one, whatever your end point is, let's say it's death. Um, and typically with statins, um, the figure is around about 100. The number needed to treat is 100. In other words, you've got to treat 100 people with this drug over a period of five years in order to prevent one, one death. So if you look at, if the individual looks at the risks in that way, he can see, he or she can see, that they've only a one in a hundred chance of avoiding a heart attack over five years by taking a statin. That's very different to the figure that's given by the government which says it, you know, it can save tens of thousands of lives or several thousand lives a year, which it probably can. But from the individual, the individual perspective is completely different. And I think, uh, I think trials, the trial results should be expressed as a number needed to treat or a number needed to screen, because this applies to screening too. This has repercussions for how we, and the National Health Service, should make decisions. David Spiegelhalter again. This is, this is you know, something beyond the actual experiment. We're assuming that everything's been done very appropriately on an appropriate sample and things like that. And, but even if, it, if that all happens and you can actually be fairly confident about the result, in terms of what you do with it, 
um, is is a very delicate issue and in, in, in how you communicate the results and how you use them for policy making and very often you find that when uh, people want to produce a, a, a result that looks impressive uh, they will use what's known as, as, a, as a, you know, a relative risk they'll say this reduces your risk by 50% or increases the risk by something rather than they use a percentage change however um, and that, and that can often look very impressive indeed. However, when it comes to actual decision making, and that's decision making for an individual deciding what treatment they'll have, or in particular decision making for, for a, a health service deciding on what treatment strategies to implement on populations, the relative change is not, is not the thing you need to look at. You need to look at the absolute change. You need to look at, actually, if we do this on a thousand people, what benefits will we observe? Will this help one people, one person, two person, three people? Because that will decide, and it does uh, in the end in a, in a health service, certainly in the British health service, in the, depending on how much that's going to cost. Because if you're going to spend you know, a huge amount of money, it's actually only going to benefit uh, one person out of all the people um, that you're giving this drug to, this treatment to perhaps, then um, actually there may be better ways to spend the money. And you can't make a decision on the basis of relative risks. If someone says this treatment, oh, you should have this, it reduces the risk of, of um, this event, of this dying, of this order by 50%. You think, oh, that's interesting. However, it, that you cannot, from that information, decide whether it's a worthwhile treatment to have because you need to know what the, what the risk was before you take the drug. You know, what is the absolute benefit? Maybe it's, just, maybe it's not worth paying for if you're a government. Maybe if you're a patient, it's not worth having because of the side effects that actually you don't want to do this. It's not worth the, um, not worth the, the, the benefit, even that, if that benefit is, is, is true. That's all we've got time for in this podcast, but we hope you have a better idea of the vital role of statistics in providing sound evidence for medical decisions. You can read more about evidence-based medicine in our latest package of information on health and medicine on the PLUS site. This package includes articles on the controversial benefits and risks of breast cancer screening, the role of maths in health economics, and a deeper look at randomised controlled trials, along with a classroom activity and our previous podcast with Sheila Bird looking at the NLive study in detail. You can find this and much more at the PLUS site, plus.maths.org. I'm Rachel Thomas. Happy reading and stay well. (laughs) 